Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga from College Coach. I hope you're all doing well, enjoying well over around here. It's actually really rainy, so it's warmer, but it's raining. <laughs> so, but nonetheless, if you are juniors in particular, go visit colleges. That is your assignment right now. All right. I think today is going to be a really interesting show. For our second segment, I'll be talking with Joy Biscarnet. Um, college coach veteran about how to use Naviance, a college counseling program common in high schools to its fullest potential as a student uh, researching colleges. And for our last segment, my guest will be Vanessa Garrido, and I know I mispronounced that, uh, Glogauer, currently on the education team here at College Coach and former Reed College admission officer and public school teacher about her personal story as a child of immigrants who was also the first generation in her family to attend college. Um, that's part of our stories from our team segments, which I hope you all enjoy as much as I do. But first, Stacy, if you're watching this on the YouTube videos, um, Stacy McFeeders, we call her Stacy Mac. So hopefully I didn't get her pronounce her Perfect. name incorrectly. Um, one of our college finance experts, she'll be telling us everything you need to know about athletic scholarships. Welcome, Stacy. Hi, Sally. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks for being on here. And actually, it's it's I love the finance segments partially because this is the area where I am like really almost totally clueless. And thanks to all these <laughs> segments, I've actually been able to like say little things that I know are true. <laughs> so um, and I think that you have a personal connection to this because your daughter is a recruited athlete, correct? That's correct. My daughter is currently a senior, has just made her commitment to sit. Well, she made her commitment decision a little while ago, but she will be playing basketball. Uh, and we have just spent the last couple of years going through the college athletic recruiting process. So, yep, we've been there. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty complicated. I mean, I always warn, I know enough to tell people that it's kind of like a second whole application process mm -hmm. and then where scholarships are part of it that's like a third layer exactly um i mean i'll be honest i've mostly worked with division three where scholarships are not a thing so um um but so that actually brings up the question of, um do all college athletics offer athletic scholarships it's a great question and it's probably the most important first question <clears throat> when considering the sort of scholarship endeavor when it comes to athletics. So the short answer is only Division I and Division II colleges and NAIA colleges offer scholarships. So what that means is Division III colleges do not offer athletic scholarships. And I'm going to mm -hmm. underscore that because I know we're going to come back and visit that, or I'd imagine we will. Um, but generally speaking, we know that it's Division I and Division II uh, that award athletic scholarships. And then how they are, are offered how they're offered by sport, and then amounts can vary across the spectrum. Um, so just, you know, as, as student athletes are getting ready to look at colleges, they need to understand that if they're looking for athletic scholarships, they're only going to be awarded at those division one and division two colleges. Mm -hmm. And not even all division one, right? Like I believe yep. that the Ivies don't offer any correct. scholarships, correct? That's correct. Yep, yeah. absolutely. So within division one, there is the Ivy League, League exception. There are some Patriot League exceptions as well. I think, you know, sort of setting the ground, you know, the groundwork for folks might be helpful. And that is to say that there are 8 million high school athletes right now, today, mm -hmm. only 522,000 of those go on to even play in college and less than 5% of that number gets division one scholarships. So when we're talking about the universe of high school athletics going on to play, 6.5%, and then only 5% of those are ultimately getting scholarships. So you know, when you, when you've got your seventh grader and you think they're the next, you know, whoever, Elena Deladon or, you know, whoever you really want to kind of give serious thought to the reality that most students probably will not either go on to play and even fewer will go on to get those scholarships. So really keep your options open when it comes to searching, um, for an athletic program. Mm -hmm. And realize that with athletics, it's very similar to academic scholarships where you're going to get the biggest scholarship where you're more of a standout, right? Mm -hmm. Like, absolutely. Because yep. one of the things that I've run into is to kind of tell students, you know, they're like, well, I want to play at name whatever school 
is sort of amazing for their sport. And I'm like, okay, but if you're below average, your best bet is to be a walk-on and then you're not going to get any money and it's not going to give you any admissions boost. And they're like, but that's where I want to play. And I'm like, well, <laughs> yep, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, if you need money too, this is all going to be challenging to work out. <laughs> exactly. And, and then there's sort of this other complexity within the financing structure. And that is that there are what they call headcount sports, which are generally those that get the larger scholarships. Mm-hmm. And then there are what are called um, equivalency sports, which are generally those that get much smaller numbers of scholarships and much, much smaller amounts. And realistically, think about what, what you think they might be. The headcount scholarships are the scholarships that are bringing in revenue to the institution. So those are going to be your football, your basketball, um, you know, things of that nature, the higher profile sports. Others are going to be equivalency sports where schools may be lucky to get partial scholarships for parts of their teams. Mm-hmm. So really, I think, you know, as as we say with everything, you know, it comes back to putting together a really comprehensive list and making sure your list is made up of all of the right components. On the athletic side of things, it could be not only scholarship available opportunities or athletic scholarship available opportunities, but also maybe thinking about where you might not get scholarships for athletics, but there might be other opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, even if, if you're a strong enough student going to a D3 school that offers scholarships, you'll get an academic scholarship yep. and you'll be able to play. So it sort of depends on, I think what your goal is, but I really like getting this message out to parents because I feel like yeah. I hear parents sometimes really think that athletic scholarships are more plentiful than academic. And I've, I've had to really like tell people a that they're wrong and then have them really push back. And I'm like, look, you're hearing about the scholarships because those famous athletes are on the news. You're not hearing about the the academic ones. They're not making the news as much. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's a really, really important focus. Um, you know, and I don't mind sharing since we, we talked at the beginning, when we started the process, my daughter was looking at both D, all three, D1, D2, D3 schools, excuse mm-hmm. me. Sorry. Um, And pretty quickly in her process, she narrowed down the option of wanting to play at a division three school because she's much more academically focused. Mm -hmm. And for those who are really sort of immersed in athletics, division one is absolutely a full-time job. Division Mm -hmm. two, pretty close for her. She felt like she wanted the balance of, of the opportunity for great academics, as well as the opportunity for athletics. So realistically, our focus then became still looking at financing, still looking at scholarships, but now it wasn't athletic anymore. Now we were focusing on those schools where she could compete academically, compete athletically and garner those merit scholarships. So really important point for so many of the people that we've already both talked about it twice. And that is at those division three schools, know that there is a significant amount of resources at a lot of schools that are offering merit scholarships. Sometimes they're called leadership scholarships. Sometimes they're based strictly on academics. But usually schools are looking at sort of different components in order to consider athletics in that sort of applicant pool for merit while not offering athletic scholarships, as I use quote fingers for those who are listening. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's something that people really need to be aware of is that at the division three level, there are a lot of really plentiful merit opportunities that are going to be greater than the athletic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I worked with students when I was at Whittier, which did offer plentiful merit scholarships. My other two schools, uh, one of which was division three and one of which didn't really have athletics at all, yeah. obviously didn't offer athletic scholarships, but we, we offered plentiful uh, merit aid. And um, it was kind of cool because I would talk to students who would say, you know, I got like one student in particular, um, you know, had gotten a scholarship to, a, I, I think what was an impressive D1 program, but realized when he said he wanted to major in biology because he was thinking about being pre-med, they were like, you should do journalism or communications. And not that there aren't really good communications programs, but he was being actively dissuaded and that made him kind of look away from the higher level and look towards the D3 because I I promised him and I knew it was the case that our coach at Whittier College was very pro the players getting an education. They were scholars first. Yep, absolutely, absolutely, yep. Yeah. So anything else, like um, any other kind of comments or pieces of advice that you would give to people? I mean, I think the main thing is, yes, have a balanced list, realize it's going to be a stressful process. Do not count on a mer- on an athletic scholarship. Right. So look for those other sources. Yep. Um, I mean, I also tell people, I know someone who went to Notre Dame 
initially on an athletic scholarship and then got injured. And I think that, so he couldn't play. I mean, he was a really good tennis player. He said that Notre Dame actually honored the scholarship commitment. This was quite a few years ago, but I don't know that all schools would do that. I think Notre Dame is a particularly ethical institution as far as those things go. Yeah, I think, so I think it's an important question. And actually that probably one of of my last two points, which is most athletic scholarships are not assumed for years. They're renewable. Mm -hmm. So while people are always like, oh, full athletic scholarship, which is not quite as 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 much of a thing as people think, ask the questions in the Mm -hmm. process. How renewable is this? What happens if this if the student athlete is no longer able to play, no longer desires to play? Mm -hmm. There are a lot of schools that will make up the the merit in a different way. Um, But again, it's worth asking the question. And again, renewability is is a really important question when going through the process. Um, and I think my only other point would be, if you are very much interested in the student is the student athlete is absolutely a standout. This process is going to start a lot earlier than your mm-hmm. junior year or your senior year. So if you are someone who might be a junior who thinks their student athlete is very good and they haven't been involved with discussions with coaches, they're probably already too late. Mm-hmm. Um, not always, but I want to be sure that I'm cautioning, especially at the D1 and D2 level. We know that those those offers for, have gone out and they probably have already met their class of 2023. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are other things to think about. So think about the balance. Think about what the student really wants in their education and their athletic endeavors. And then think about your timing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I worked with a soccer player and she was all sewn up to go to a major D1 school in January of her junior year. I mean, I couldn't believe it. (laughs) I'm not, I I think it worked out well for her, but um, I was a little alarmed because it was, it's pretty early. It is very early. It is very early. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was a good school though. She was happy. So it all worked out. Awesome. So, all right. Well, I think that's it. Unless you've got anything else to add. I think we covered the main thing. I think we've got the high level and I think uh, any more details would get confusing. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds good. Exactly. Yeah, that's important too. All right. Well, thank you so much, Stacey. My pleasure. Okay. All right. So we're going to be taking a short break, but when we return, I'll be talking with Joy Biscornet about using Naviance. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit getintocollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome, Joy. Hi, Sally. It's good to be here with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show, and I think the topic of using Naviance to its full potential is a great one. But let's start by explaining what Naviance is. I realize that not everybody necessarily knows. Sure, Naviance is pretty much an application management platform that uh, different high schools can use to assist students with not only keeping track of their applications or their, the schools that they're interested in applying to, but can also give them some really good information and resources about researching colleges and um, finding a good match. It can also explore career interests. Um, Naviance isn't the only management platform available to schools, but I think I would say it's the one that most schools use at the moment. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I'll actually say that I put it into place at one of the high schools that I worked at because <laughs> we were just using a spreadsheet and I was like, this is not working. This is horrible. Um, you know, um, you know, because we were trying to track data about our own students and uh, too error prone, whereas Naviance really, you know, just sort of much easier to keep the data clean. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And I should say that Joy was also a high school counselor. Did you use Naviance at your school? I did. And if I didn't, I don't know if I would have made application deadlines in time, but it really did streamline the process for the counseling office that I worked in because we were able to submit letters of recommendation and transcripts electronically, um, which made it a lot easier for just making sure that documents were submitted and received by the different uh, colleges. Mm -hmm. And it makes it easy for students to look and see if those things have been submitted as well. So they can kind of not panic and see that it made it in by the deadline. So, Mm -hmm. um, all right. So what would you say, so let's kind of switch over then to the student facing side of things. Like what are some things that students should keep in mind in terms of using it to its full potential? So I think for younger high school students, particularly ninth and 10th graders, um, the career tab in, um, in Naviance can be very helpful in helping them explore kind of what different careers are out there and, and maybe what their interests might be well suited for. So there are career exploration um, resources that I would encourage younger students to use. Um, juniors and seniors can use that as well, but I think once you get into second semester of junior year, you're looking to use Naviance a little bit more to dig into um, managing your applications and also doing that college research. So one of the things that I really like on the student side of Naviance is um, they have this super match. And it's a a questionnaire, if you will, that you can fill out that allows students to input their different interests in terms of not only major, and you can be undecided, Supermatch will Mm -hmm. still work if you don't have a major, but location. So if you want to be close to home or, or far away, you can select entire regions of the country or just individual states. You can determine the size of the school that you want to go to. It'll even give you selectivity range for admission. So schools that are highly selective, those that are very selective, selective, and then even those that might have an open enrollment. Mm -hmm. And then depending on what the student inputs for their criteria, Naviance will generate a list of schools and the super match even gives you kind of a percentage of how much of a match it is based on your interests. And then it has some high level information about schools as well as a link to uh, the university's website. So you can learn more about it just by clicking that link. It'll direct you uh, to an individual school's website. But one of the things that I really like about Naviance when I'm talking to students, uh, Sally, is their scattergrams. Mm -hmm. And what a scattergram is, it's a graph that has the historical data for a student's high school of applications to a particular university. So for a certain period of time, when I was a college counselor, we used the last five years of data to show decisions. So it's helpful. It's a visual aid to say, am I in the ballpark? <laughs> what, what are my chances of getting admitted? Um, and I think that can be a, a lot more helpful to students than just saying, well, their acceptance rate is 33% mm-hmm. or 75% because that doesn't take a student's academic profile into account. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or even when they have like the GPA average, because sometimes it's just the GPA average and the test score average. And that's still like not as helpful as the graph, you know, right. the scattergram. Yeah. 
So the scattergram, and I actually have a couple of examples for us to use. The scattergram uses two data points, so GPA and either SAT or ACT score, to give kind of a, an average um, that's been admitted from that particular school. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. And just for the people who are um, are watching this on YouTube, Joy is going to share one of the graphs. And then for those of you who are just listening to this, we'll do our best to explain what we see. Okay. So I'm going to share my screen. So this is a scattergram for the last 10 years, actually, to Penn State. And I'm taking this information from um, college coaches data. So um, just to get a sense of what you're seeing is those green squares, those are students who applied to Penn State and have been admitted. Mm -hmm. this, um, the red X's are students who've applied but been denied. And then um, that blue diamond is an example of a student who has applied and been waitlisted. There are also some other squares and triangle uh, combinations, like a, a green square and a yellow triangle means that that student has been accepted through early action. So this is a, a great way to see based on a student's GPA and SAT score where they might fall within the decisions from their high school um, that Penn State has made for over a period of time. So I've used just um, a GPA of a 3.93 and mm -hmm. an SAT of a 1490. And I'm gonna roll magnify a little bit. Do you see that getting bigger, Sally? Mm -hmm, definitely. So you can see that there is a red circle right here. This is my profile. So mm -hmm. I can see that I am around a number of students that have been admitted through either regular decision or through early action. But so I can look and say, oh, I've, you know, I think I'm in the ballpark. Or I might even say if I'm a, a student, I might say, oh, I've got, you know, I'm in at Penn State. This is this is a safety. This is why I don't like to use the word safety or backup. If you see, I'm going to scroll a little bit bigger. Among all of these admits, there is a red X right mm -hmm. there. That student was denied. So and normally you, just by looking at this, you would look and say, oh, that why was that student denied? There's also a student up here that was denied early action. Mm -hmm. So this can help a student get a sense of that they're in the ballpark, but I think it also shows that nothing is a guarantee and that, you know, there are schools that should be in a probable category, a possible mm -hmm. category, and then reach so that you have a range of predictability of admissions on your college list. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I would even call this student, since most of the students got in, I would call it probable. But as you said, understand that it's not 100%. And, and this also, I think, does bring up some of the uncertainty. Maybe that's the student who was denied was applying into a highly selective major like engineering, for example, exactly. or computer science, something like that. I would also agree with you that if I were counseling a student, I would identify Penn State for this student as a probable category mm -hmm. um, or a probable outcome, but never would I say safety. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I have another scattergram. Let me see if I can bring this up. Sure. Can you see this one, Sally? Mm -hmm. I'm going to roll yep. in a USC little bit USC is right there. This is USC. And I've decided to use examples of schools that are well-known by students. So that's why Penn State is often a school that's on many students' lists. Mm -hmm. USC is also a school on many students' lists. So I'm using this example, again, to show where a student, a, a range of decisions. And this student, um, this profile that I've created for a student has an ACT instead of an SAT because students are submitting either score. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to show is that you know, there are a range of decisions, even close to where my students, my, my fictitious student falls um, right around here, up here. This is the average over here for this set of students. But I want to call out 
this student right here, the, the student that's been admitted, that is well below the average admitted uh, profile. Mm -hmm. I call this student out because oftentimes when I was working with students in the high school setting, if their circle was close to a, a, an acceptance like this, they would say, oh, I have a chance. You know, there's someone else who's been admitted. Mm -hmm. But when you look at this overall, this student must have had some sort of um, something that distinguished them um, that gave uh, the admission committee, the, the, the desire to admit the student because their profile is not like any other student around them. Mm -hmm. So if your profile in Naviance or if you're using another platform is more of an outlier and there's only maybe one other student near you, that's, that school, I would say, would still be a reach because there had to be some sort of special interest in this student mm -hmm. that outweighed everything else. Right. Like I would say that student was likely um, either major donor, which I'm not talking about like alumni with who gives 5,000 a year. I'm talking about really enormous sums of money beyond the reach of most of us, like, you know, well beyond um, or yeah, like recruited athlete. You know, mm -hmm. like someone who was really just absolutely a top athlete, because um, I would say that this was not just a reach, but a reach plus plus for a student who didn't have one of those really compelling institutional priorities that we're going to get them in. Exactly. Um, and I think this this could be hard to look at, especially if, you know, US, a school like USC is your top choice. But I think it's also an important conversation to have. So a student goes into any admission process with their eyes open and, and knowing what the likely outcome would be, no matter how much how disappointing it might be. Mm -hmm. I think an interesting thing, if we can stay on this slide for just one more second, sure. is how kind of all over the place the admits really are. Right. Yes. So we're looking at a school like you know, there are some schools where also if you're like, I'll call this out. I don't I don't know exactly what's going on here. But for example, if you're a dance major at NYU, obviously the academic demands are lower. It's really going to be audition based. I imagine that USC also has some of those. So recruited athlete, maybe a very talented, talented artist of some kind, you know, so so keep those things in mind as well. Um, the other thing, too, is that even if like, you know, where your little circle is, that's where a lot of the students have been admitted, but it's still right next to X, to the X's that say deny. So that means it's still a reach. Like I would, in this situation, I would tell a student, go for it, but don't count on it. Like this is a reach school, even though your average is even higher than the accepted average. Exactly. In my opinion, this school is a reach for this student. It's not, um, it's not, possible just because of the data that we have showing the the varied decisions around their statistics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's even a student with who's on slightly like around the same GPA as the student example you give, which is like above around a 4.0 and that's unweighted. So perfect, basically. Mm -hmm. Waitlisted and, and has a 36 on the ACT, not just a 34. And um, who was waitlisted and then denied. So, yep. so these are the things that unfortunately students need to factor in. Like these kinds of charts, scattergrams mean this school is a reach for everybody. And unless you have a special hook, you really shouldn't even bother unless you're up way up in that corner right. or you have a special talent or some kind of something. And then there's one more thing, one more scattergram that I want to show you, and that is for an Ivy League school. I'm going to use the University of Pennsylvania. So I'm going to need to scroll in a whole lot here for you to be able to see. And I've done some high statistics, a uh, high profile. This student, I've said, has a 3.9 GPA and a 15.70 on the SAT. And the accepted average is a 3.94 and a 15.43. So technically, this student is above the average. 
I don't know if you can even make it out, Sally, but there's the circle for this student. And there are so many decisions here that it's sort of black in color now. It's hard to make out. And I think I can see maybe one, two, maybe three yeses in that. And this is to show that, again, there are some students that are below that likely have some sort of special consideration. Um, but this is to say even students that are above the admitted student profile, it's a, an Ivy League school is a reach for every student. Mm -hmm. That's not to say you shouldn't, if you've done the work and it's appropriate to put your, your application in a pool like this, there's nothing that says you can't, but you have to be aware of the likely outcomes. And, mm -hmm. and Naviance can paint a picture for students um, that is, is very clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this one says, given how few students are getting in, even those who are above the average of, the, of, of their average admits, this is a reach plus plus for everybody, just like an extreme reach. Um, yeah, I always tell students, again, yeah, I agree. It doesn't mean you can't have it on your list, but um, don't have your whole list look like this and don't even have all your reaches look like this. Like throw in like a USC, even if you're a top student, like UPenn is the crazy reach, have a couple of those. And then have like the USC's, which are reached, but maybe not as crazy for a top student and then balance it out. Um, one of the things that I see that I'm gonna, that hopefully if you look at your school's Naviance records, this will convince you um, not to do is, uh, you know, students who want to admit to, who kind of want to apply to like one safety and then everything else is these crazy reaches. Please don't do that. I promise you'll find great schools where the graphs are not as scary as these graphs. <laughs> like, right. Like Penn State so, as one example. <laughs> right. So I'm going to stop sharing. Um, okay. But I, I hope that those give a few examples of how students can get a sense of if they're in the ballpark um, and in, in helping them to create a balanced list. And certainly um, a student school counselor can help with that because a school counselor will have, again, even more detailed information about, mm -hmm. you know, they might look and say, oh, I remember who that student was, or this is a special case because. Mm -hmm. um, so that can be, um, your school counselor is, is an additional resource to consider when when trying to understand the data in in Naviance. Yes, please do use your school counselor and know that they're not allowed to tell you who those students are who got in. They are not allowed to. That is confidential information, but they are allowed to tell you, you know, you don't look like that student for various reasons. So I'd like you to be a little more cautious in your list <laughs> and please do listen to them when they say that. If you need to do a Hail Mary pass towards a big reach, go for it. But just, again, balance your list out and, yeah, have those good safeties on there as well. Or reach school or uh, probables, probables. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> Got to get the terms right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Joy. Thanks, Sally. It's always great to chat with you. Absolutely. Um, all right. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be right back to talk, with, uh, talk to Vanessa about attending college as a first-generation child of immigrants. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit getintocollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one -on -one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. 
To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome, Vanessa. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks, Sally. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Listen, I love this series where people, where our colleagues talk about their own stories of going to college. Um, It's just been fascinating, every single one that I've done. So I really appreciate you talking about your own. And I know that, um, like, what are some things that you might highlight right off the bat that you think, you know, particularly particularly that our listeners might find useful and helpful? Well, I applied early decision to read, and I think that the experience was pretty unique, um, given that I'm a first-generation college student, college graduate. Um, I did a lot of the research kind of on my own, and also over of happenstance that I even heard about read. So I think talking a little bit about the early decision experience, um, I think that could be useful. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I also just think in terms of finding a niche at a small liberal arts college, which to me, I wasn't super familiar what liberal arts colleges were. Mm-hmm. Um, happy to chat about that as well. Um, mm-hmm. I also, I did the running start program in Washington state. And I think having a little bit of community college experience was kind of a nice transitional experience for me. Um, I got my associate of arts degree as a high school student concurrently with my diploma. And I just kind of made that transition to a rigorous four-year institution a little smoother. Mm -hmm. So let's actually start with that because I think that's kind of interesting. Like we can kind of do it in maybe somewhat uh, in, in, you know, in order of how things happened in time. Mm -hmm. So in general at private colleges, I like to make sure that our listeners um, know this. Um, you know, we, we make it clear that, that programs like Running Start are not, you're probably not going to credit, mo- transfer most of your credits. And it's not always honestly as rigorous as like AP or honors courses at a lot of high schools. But it clearly in your circumstance, Running Start was 100% the right thing to do. So why don't you talk about why that was helpful to you as a first generation um, daughter of immigrants? Like what, what was helpful about that in particular? Yeah, just to give a little bit of background too, I grew up in the Los Angeles area, but we moved to really rural part of Washington state when I was halfway through my freshman year of high school. So a part of the attraction of going to Running Start was also just being in kind of a larger community again. Mm -hmm. The culture shock of being in such a small town just never really settled for me. So um, my high school was really tiny and it was a small town called Zilla and we only had about 83 people in my uh, graduating class. Mm -hmm. Not a whole lot of APs, not a super, you know, rigorous high school environment. So um, part of the attraction of going to Running Start was just um, being kind of in a bigger community and having access to more classes. So I took some anthropology classes I loved, a lot of English courses, and it was just exciting to connect with professors and get a little bit more of the rigor from that piece. Um, So yeah, that Mm -hmm. was a big draw for me. Yeah. And I think that highlights like running one of the places where Running Start is really wonderful and Running Start so is dual enrollment for people in other states. Um, is just for schools that maybe are under-resourced in some way or another and really give students access to courses that they might not have access to otherwise. And I like the notion of the larger community. I hadn't really thought about that. Did, did it feel more kind of college bound also than your high school? Was that a helpful piece of it too? Yeah, a lot of the high school students who were there were just really dedicated students, really excited about college. Uh, I actually heard about read through uh, another high school student who was a year ahead of me, and he was just brilliant. And I was thinking he was going to go to an IV. And when he told me he was going to read, I was like, I've never heard of that place. So mm-hmm. that's how I actually uh, found out about read. But I also just love the diversity of the community, like, you know, all sorts of ages, backgrounds. And I did some theater through the community college as well. And that was really fun to do theater productions with all ages. And yeah, mm-hmm. I love that. So you were really immersed in the community. You weren't just taking a couple, were you full-time there or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I did full-time for the uh, junior and senior year. I took a couple classes at the high school as well, but I did full-time, like all my core classes and stuff at uh, the community college. Okay. All right. Great. Okay. So, so this is really helpful right off the bat. Were you able to access like advisors, et cetera, at the community college um, or was it more informally through the professors and other students? 
I did have access to a, an advisor each year, but I also connected with professors, especially within the disciplines I was excited about. So mm-hmm. I talked to the English professors a little more closely, the anthropology professors, and they helped me kind of prepare for Reed as well. Just they knew about Reed and they were help, helpful to, to start thinking about potential majors and things like that. So mm-hmm. that was really nice. Okay. All right. Great. Um, all right. So let's talk about your decision to apply to apply early decision, because that is a pretty unusual, you know, tell tell me about how that happened. Yeah, so in retrospect, you know, having my admission experience now, I don't know if I would have applied early decision. <laughs> I think that I might have taken a little more time to, to explore some other options. I mean, it turned out perfectly for me because Reed was a great fit, but um, essentially, you know, I didn't have the resources really to travel a whole lot at the time, and it was difficult to get uh, a sense of a lot of different types of schools, and I was a pretty strong student. I think that the counselor at my high school was like, she'll be fine. She can mm-hmm. kind of just figure it out for the most part. Mm-hmm. So um, we visited University of Washington mm-hmm. for a program, like a journalism day program, and I had kind of idealize it in my head as a potential school because I'd always wanted to go to Berkeley when I was living in California. So I thought maybe mm-hmm. a big public school would be a good fit. Uh, but when I visited UW, I quickly realized this is just way too big for me. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to feel lost here. So uh, I was a little unsure, you know, what other alternatives would be a good fit that I can actually visit. And when my friend David from Running Start mentioned he was going to read, you know, we were able to visit in the summertime and, you know, visiting in the summer has some drawbacks. You don't get the full experience of what a day-to-day life for students would be like, you know, but they did a great job of really fleshing it out for visitors. Like I did an interview, uh, the info session and tour were really informative. I actually interviewed with Christine Sawicki, uh, our colleague now, and mm-hmm. that, that was just such a nice touch, the personal touch. Um, so I, I just was left with this amazing feeling like this is my place. You know, I, I mm-hmm. think I could be really happy here. So I decided to apply early decision, you know, based on that experience. I think, um, you know, I, I would advise students now to, you know, even if you have that feeling, make sure that you look at a few more schools too, because there are a lot of schools that can be a great fit, but it turned out really well for me because mm-hmm. Reed was a great fit. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, I've actually told students that applying early decision doesn't just mean visiting that school. It means visiting other schools as well and making sure that this is still the right place for you, that you're willing exactly. to make that kind of commitment. But I am very glad that it worked out for you. <laughs> Yes, yes. I I think the confirmation of visiting additional schools is so important. So I, yeah, I I think that everyone should definitely do that. But it it worked out well for me, fortunately. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk about um, working. Like I know that you worked already in high school. I know that you did work study at Reed. Are there ways in which that was made academics more challenging or conversely ways that it benefited it or maybe even maybe both? Yeah, a little bit of both. I think it benefited for the most part. I think what it made more challenging for me was to have a really robust social engagement with extracurricular activities. Like Mm -hmm. I was involved with the Latino Student Union. There were a few, you know, I was in a theme dorm, the film dorm, which kind of gave me that social connection piece. But Mm -hmm. with academics being, you know, quite rigorous and then the, the work that I would be doing, it was just hard to do much more than that. Fortunately, the work I was doing was really fun. Like first I started in the library and I mean, it's just a pretty great place to work in, uh, mm-hmm. in the library. So um, I, I loved working there. And then I also worked in the print shop. So I, I did that closer to when I was graduating and I got really close with the print shop folks, the staff there, and they actually uh, printed some of my theses for free as a gift. And it became like a little family. It was really oh. just nice. Um, and I also did some babysitting for professors and I was a research assistant. So I think it gave me confidence that I was connecting with these mentors, not just professors. I did have some awesome professor mentors as well, but some staff too, that just made me feel like Reed was my home even Mm -hmm. more so. Yeah. I, I have to say, I mean, actually the studies have shown that working up to like 20 hours a week, I mean, I not, you know, not all schools are as rigorous as others, but in general, working up to 20 hours a week seems to correlate with higher grades Mm -hmm. at most places. And I'm somebody who worked every year I was at Reed and it did expand the community to include adults Um, So I really think even if students are very busy, even if they find something that they just do a couple hours a week, it's just it's so helpful. Right. I completely agree. And I think it gives you inside knowledge into different components of the college experience. So I just got more comfortable in the library. I mean, we all spend a ton of time there, but mm-hmm. I, I got to know it like the back of my hand. I knew all the great spots to, to study and, you know, where all the books were for every department. And mm-hmm. it was just a, a nice way to be connected to that part of the community. 
I always thought that I should get a job at the library because you could study. Like if you were a late night, I mean, because read the library was open until two in the morning. I I don't know if it was the same when you were there. Mm -hmm. Um, Vanessa and I, by the way, went to the same school, just like a couple decades apart. Um, And yeah, like the people who were there kind of in the core of the day were quite busy, but the, the, the last like one or two people who were there like they were studying, which was great. I thought I should really do this, but I kept doing other things instead. <laughs> yeah, there were always quiet times. Like if I worked in the summer, you know, when you were shelving books, if you got done with your books that you were shelving, you could just sit and read for a while. You know, it's pretty nice. Yeah, yeah, really, really nice. Yeah. Um, and anything else? I mean, you also mentioned participating in the New York City Teaching Fellows Program after working in admissions. And mm-hmm. so you worked in admissions as well, huh? So let's let's like flesh that out. How did you get your job at admissions? I mean, uh, we all come at it differently. A lot of us were tour guides, which is how I got into it. Then I became an intern and then they hired me. How did you uh, move into it? Yeah, I was one of the few people I think that didn't really have a connection to the admission <laughs> office before working there. Uh, I, I did have a really good friend who worked in the admission office, though, and she was saying she thought it could be a good fit. And they were looking for folks who could maybe work with the multicultural recruitment piece. So I was excited about that. And mm-hmm. uh, fortunately, the interview went well. I had, you know, Christine was again on the interview team, which was really mm-hmm. cool, like full circle <laughs> right there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it was I loved working in admission. I, you know, I had an amazing region. I had New York down through D. See pretty much, and then Hawaii, which was incredible. Uh, so I got to yeah. see, yeah, I, for somebody who hadn't traveled a lot, I was just, I kind of hit a goal line there. How did you so. get Hawaii? Usually it's the senior people who get Hawaii. <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't ask too many questions. I was just, you're grateful. like, okay, I'll go to Hawaii. Like, that's uh, if I have to, I'll, yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> you probably got lucky that most of your colleagues had like kids at home and so they couldn't make those sorts of trips. That's the only thing I can think of because I only had Hawaii for one year and it was be- like when I worked at another institution, it was because I was really senior. So yeah, um, I was very, very fortunate and I had it the entire four years. So I was very grateful for that. And it was just such a great way to see different parts of the, the country as well. So mm-hmm. I, I really loved my region. And I just, uh, I, as I would travel more and more to New York, I just kind of fell in love with New York City more and more. And I also, I, I loved working in admission, but I also wanted to help students become more prepared for places like Reed and highly, mm-hmm. you know, selective, rigorous institutions in general. Uh, I, sometimes there would be a big gap with the passion that they had and maybe like their essays weren't as strong. So I was kind of thinking, you know, doing some English, you know, being an English teacher could be a good fit. So I found the New York City Teaching Fellows Program. It was an excellent fit as well. Um, they, you know, you get your master's concurrently while you're teaching. So it's a lot of work uh, for mm-hmm. sure, but it's, it's a nice way to kind of just jump right into the field. And then, yeah, so I did that for six years in New York and it was, it was really fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, a a big change from a a rural high school, although you had lived in Los, in Los Angeles before. So, yeah. 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 So let's talk though. I mean, I think it's really, um, I think it's really useful to hear because you, you both came from a background from an under-resourced high school, you were first generation, and then you worked in admissions and then you taught students from that kind of a background, although not small high schools, these were urban, but still under-resourced high schools, I think, right? And Correct. since then you worked at a high school or you worked at a school at least in Walla Walla. So I'm guessing that was probably not, you know, it's a small city. Um, so kind of talk about what are some tips that you would give students who are maybe in your situation, um, you know, who, who were sort of going to college without a lot of the assistance kind of at home necessarily or from a high school counselor. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in all of the environments that I worked in, I think uh, there were students who would need a little extra support and those who would seek the support were the ones who did best. But I think mm-hmm. some of the students who just felt nervous or like they should know these things and they didn't want to you know, attract too much attention or something like that, they wouldn't always go in for help. So that's something I would just tell my previous self as well, that mm-hmm. just because you're doing well academically, doesn't mean that you completely understand the way admissions works, doesn't mean that you know um, kind of how to access the admission office. So that's another piece that I would definitely 
tell all students in general that admission offices, you know, they're there to help. I mean, they're gatekeepers as well, but I think something that brings admission counselors a lot of joy is to clarify and kind of demystify the process for students. So Mm -hmm. when you're visiting, come with questions, Um, you know, even just talking to students now, a lot of them are nervous to to ask, like, can I ask, uh, Mm -hmm. what is the what, what are they seeking from an applicant? And I'm like, you can ask those things, you know, they, they don't want it to be all closed off. So, mm-hmm. um, but I think also from counselors at school, teachers at school, um, just seeking that support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even getting help, like once you get to college, I think if you're struggling in your classes, they want you to succeed. Colleges exactly. want you to graduate. It, it Colleges look bad if you don't graduate. Completely. So please, even if it's like, I can't afford to buy my books, tell somebody and they will try and help you with it. Absolutely. Yeah. And just knowing the resources at the school, knowing where the tutoring center is, knowing what kind of support services they have, where's the health center, just clarifying where all of that is ahead of time is a really good idea. Um, And, you know, there's not a stigma for getting help. Like Mm -hmm. there was a political science class that I got, I had a peer tutor in and it was so helpful. They ended up asking me to be a peer tutor after. So, you know, Mm -hmm. it can, it just helps so much to get that support when, when you're in college. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, as here on college coach, I talked to this one student who was, you know, she was trying to move from a satellite campus to like the flagship campus. And to do so, she had to take this very rigorous course load. It was during the pandemic and she wasn't sure she was going to be able to get the grades. And I said, um, and, and she was kind of trying to find out if there was another way to do it. And I was like, honestly, not necessarily like you're, you're really risking, you know, if you drop one of these classes, you're risking that you're going to stay where you are, which isn't a terrible thing, but it doesn't seem to be what you want. So, um, so I was like, why not get tutoring? And she said, well, I don't need tutoring. And I was like, okay, explain that to me because you're telling me that you're overworked and you're worried about your grades. And she said, yeah, I can, I can teach myself. It just takes a while. And I'm like, that's a perfectly good reason to get a tutor. Like for some reason she had it in her head that she had to be like, I don't know, really struggling, not able to understand it. And I'm like, no, make best friends with the people in the tutoring places. And I exactly like they were all on the website. I looked it up for her. I was like, go here, go here, go here and make best friends with these people so that you can get to your goal. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. I think sometimes students attach a stigma in their head about getting that support and it's, it's not real. It's something they can relinquish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And they really like, please do relinquish it. Ask for help if there's something that's getting in your way. All right. So we just have like one, like 30 seconds. Is there some last piece of advice that you would give to students applying? I think uh, just, you know, find your mentors on campus as well. Professors, they are often just really excited to connect with students, um, like staff, as I mentioned before, older students who can maybe just show the way so that you can find your niche. Um, Mm -hmm. Just seek that support. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, Vanessa. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Sally. And thank you also to Stacy and Joy for joining us. Um, hey, everyone, I think you'll really enjoy our show next week when fellow hosts Ian Fisher and guests will be talking about the benefits of attending a college that is part of a consortium. Um, in addition, the show will cover next steps for high school seniors who are heading off to college. And finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website. You can also download download every show for free on iTunes. And if you want to search for a particular show topic, go to our blog page at blog.getintocollege.com. That's blog.getintocollege.com. And don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.